this this morning. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Your glory is just bursting all around us. We are so blessed. And uh, we thank you for John. And when we get, whenever we get together like this, I just feel like we're in the upper room and, and the, the spirit is just being downloaded into us. And I thank you for this. Um, And that's all. That's all I have to say. Thank you very much. Amen. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> I don't have any young uh, assistants this morning because uh, everyone's traveling on vacation. So uh, I'll do the best I can. But here's the mic, and uh, just for recording purposes, and also so that everybody can hear your good comments. Uh, don't be shy. Uh, I'll run it to you as soon as I can. Uh, this morning, we are in the chapter of Beyond Beliefs that's called Returning to God as the Word. Uh, before I forget to tell you, uh, have any of you ever gone on Wikipedia? Uh, sure, it's, it's a nice uh, thing. Uh, if you really want to do some advanced study on this topic, uh, there's an article in Wikipedia on the logos, or just logos. So actually, if you just type in Logos, L-O-G-O-S, uh, you'll see the Wikipedia article, and it really is good. And it'll give you a beautiful historical survey of how this term has been used uh, down through the ages long before Christ, and then how it relates to Jesus in particular, of which we can only hit the high points this morning. All right, well, I want us to start off this morning about uh, this uh, theological idea uh, that is embedded in the Bible. You'll never find these words in the Bible, but it's implied and stated many places and times differently than this, uh, but that's the title that theologians have given to it, progressive revelation. And before we talk about that, uh, I wonder who can finish this statement by Jesus. I have much more. to give you. Now, who can finish the rest of it? I have much more to give you. I have much more to teach you. Ah! Yes! But you're not ready yet, or let's look at it. It's in John 16, chapter, uh, chapter 16, verse 12. Uh, I have many more things to teach you. I have much more to teach you. There you go, George. I have it memorized, so it's I'm just kidding. Good to see you. You too. You got a nice little tan there from Florida. Okay, uh, who would like to read it? Thank you. Okay, yeah, go ahead and read the second part. Okay, I have much more to teach you, to say to you, but you're not ready yet to handle it. However, when he, the Spirit of God, comes, he will lead you into those things. So, let's draw some inferences about this. Now, remember, this is the end of Jesus' uh, duration with his friends and disciples and apostles. He's been teaching them for three years in the most intimate manner, at the end of those three years, 
the conclusion is what? You just you guys just finished uh, high school. Uh, and uh, but I can't even go into the deep things at this point because why? You're not ready. You can't handle it. I mean, he could have taught them all of these things, but they literally weren't able to handle it. So he gives them a promise. Yes, I know there's a lot of unresolved issues that you have in your mind. You don't have full understanding of what's going on. If you uh, ever read John 13 through 17, the uh, last <coughs> uh, Passover uh, tutorial that Jesus gave to them, you'll see they ask many questions that reveals quite clearly that they, the penny still hasn't dropped. They, they don't really see the big picture. An omnipotent God could do anything that's within God's nature. And one of the cool things about God, as revealed in the Bible, is that he doesn't overwhelm us. Uh, if I would put it in romantic terms, God woos us. God doesn't overwhelm us. And why would you think God would do that? Why would God lead us and nurture us rather than just, well, as my friend said, just boom, download it? It, okay, it could possibly mean more if you go through the process. He loves us. He knows we can handle it. Uh, yeah, and, and to try to answer Judge Haas's situation, when you say we wouldn't be able to handle it, how many of you uh, have raised children? And think back to at certain stages in their development, and did you ever have the feeling like, oh, I just wish that I could somehow... Um, show them, teach them, relate to them at this juncture of their lives what they really need to know, and then you, you realize what? Yeah, they're just not ready. Um, and so what you have to do is, to the best of your ability at that point, is break it down to them, or resort, resort to the famous line that parents say all the time to their kids, which is, because I said so. <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> uh, which satisfies no one. I mean, the parents <laughs> wants to teach the child, wants to you know understand why, and you, you realize you can't, so you say because I said so. Okay, so Judge Haas, God doesn't um, want to bypass the willful, volitional. Hi, good morning. I thought you abandoned me. I thought you <laughs> didn't want to work today. Thought you were out getting ready for. You want to do this? Sure. Okay. Um, <clears throat> God doesn't want to violate our choices, our development, our progression, because to do so would be to diminish us as persons. Okay? It would be almost tyrannical. So it's not a matter of an omnipotent God can't, couldn't do it. God just doesn't do it because it wouldn't be in our best interest. Hey, can you think of a situation where it would be not in a child's best interest to tell them certain things? 
Can you give me an, an analogy or an illustration from your own, not, not maybe your own personal lives, but just that you've observed? Is there a situation where you say, that's just not good for them to know at this point? Yeah. Um, tell me more about it. The passing of someone. Uh, yeah, like trying to explain to a five-year-old what it means to have our, our president assassinated. Uh, give me another one. What would? Yes, sir. Uh, what happens when your kids say, "Where did I come from?" Is that the time for a uh, clinical biological uh, exposition on the actual realities? What did you tell your kids, by the way, when they asked you that when they were too young to know? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, so, Sue Allen, what did you say then? Mm. Can't remember. Boy, talk about a politician's family. Wow. <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, all kinds of situations. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Well, I was told, I don't know who, way back when we were raising kids, that you can go ahead and tell them most anything, and they will just keep, they'll just hang on to what they're ready for, and then jettison the rest. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yes, what, can you got any psychological insights here on this? Yeah, yeah, okay, it goes away, okay. So, um, you know, in the book of Galatians, Paul makes a big case for this. He says um, that in the past, God actually uh, progressively revealed truth, uh, and he's specifically speaking about the Torah, the Older Testament, the law, that this was a progressive revelation, and he regarded the people at that time as children Whereas now in the New Covenant, he, he regards us as having reached uh, uh, this legal designation when you step into your majority, which is what? When you, when you reach your majority. It's a legal term. What is that? When you see John Hobbs instead of the municipal. <laughs> <laughs> All right. When you, when you reach the age of uh, full accountability and reason and legal uh, uh, rights, you have reached your majority, and so therefore, like if you have an inheritance or whatever, you now have access to it, and so forth and so on. This is exactly what Paul says in Galatians, that in the Older Testament, people were in their minority. They were children. So God parsed out the truth to them progressively over time, and then uh, led them to the fullness. So uh, this illustration right here will kind of help us that, you know, if you shine a flashlight, what happens is that the light disperses, you get more light uh, over time. That's just one way of looking at this. So all through the Older Testament, God is revealing truth to people, um, <clears throat> and over time, more truth, as they were able to handle it. For example, somebody asked me at a class I was teaching at on Thursday night uh, about the uh, King David. And uh, I guess the church that she goes to is doing a study on David. And um, uh, besides the Bathsheba situation, 
uh, was especially troubling to her is how, how many uh, women did uh, King David apparently have access to? All of them. <laughs> um, I mentioned about 20, and, and, and you're probably right. If, uh, if he would have, those were probably his uh, regulars. And so she says, uh, well, you know, what are we studying this stuff for? Why, why are we paying attention? I thought David was uh, this great man of God. I mean, we tout him, we uh, elevate him. Uh, but here it is, uh, you look at his life, and I mean, it's appalling from modern standards. How do we account for this? David got it right, and that's the way it should be? <laughs> uh, yeah, right. Ah, no, uh, you're right, but he didn't change it to one. What he actually did was say... Uh, God made certain concessions to you people uh, because of the hardness of your heart. However, it was not this way from the beginning. Does anyone remember this? This is in Matthew 22. It wasn't that way from God's original tent. God's original tent was one man, one woman for a lifetime until death uh, or whatever parts them. Uh, and then over time, what human beings did is they deviated away from and then it uh, turned into uh, a man uh, uh, having as many women as they could handle. And of course, in the, in the ancient world, kings, uh, one of the ways they displayed their uh, vigor and uh, uh, authority and power was to have a harem because the implication was what? If I can handle all these women, then I must be uh, able to, uh, you know, besides from their perverted point of view, that that was quite a little perk for them. But it was, a, it was politics, you know, it was a display of power. So, uh, Jesus didn't really change it, he went back to the beginning. So what do you guys have to say about this? David, uh, reported to be a man after God's own heart. Uh, he repented of the Bathsheba situation uh, which also involved the murdering of her husband, so it was uh, more than just like a little fling. Um, but he didn't repent of all those other women. Uh, he to oh, sure, David brought the ark back into the uh, city and made a big production. Yeah, there's no doubt about the fact that David loved God. However... Uh, he's human. Now, how many years back are we going now? <coughs> Here we are in the 21st century. You've got to go back 3,000 years to the days of David. And at that point in their development, at their stage, their capacity to understand things, David is, uh, well, however you want to look at it, a little child or a rake or an abuser of power. Uh, no deprecation intended, but as you well know, uh, 50th anniversary uh, anniversary of the tragedy of uh, Kennedy being assassinated. And President Kennedy, at the time when he was in office, uh, the press corps had a covenant with him. Uh, it was that way, generally speaking. And now it has come out what? He was a rake. I mean, like, 
he made Bill Clinton kind of look like a choir boy. Uh, <clears throat> who was that one guy, by the way? Uh, he was a Democrat, really good, smashingly good-looking guy, and his whole presidential uh, campaign got trashed because there was a photo up here of some little chica sitting. John, no, no, not John Edwards. John Hart. Gary Hart. Hart Pence. Gary Hart. Uh, he was like touted as like the new Kennedy because you know he had the same kind of flair, smashingly good looking, blah blah blah. One photograph of a woman sitting on his lap and bang, his presidential campaign is over. So things changed. If David walked into any church in America today with his entourage of women and said, I have a new psalm that I want to bless you all with. What do you think the response would be? Go to Utah. <laughs> oh. So, uh, what I was trying to tell my friend at the Bible study was, look, the Bible describes what people did then. But you must understand that the description of what they did is not an implied prescription. It's telling you what they were. It's not telling, what, telling us what we ought to be. So we have to read this as, hey, that's the way things were then, and they were kind of, even, even David should have known better, but that's, that was the norm in those days. Now, the other way of look, looking at the Bible, which is also prevalent, especially in American culture, and because of being in American culture, it's been exported all over the world, which I have encountered in Africa and in Thailand and other places, is what we would call the flat view of Scripture. The flat view of Scripture. And that's the viewpoint that says that the Bible is equally relevant, equally inspired, equally pertinent uh, at all times without any understanding that it's been progressively relevant, uh, re revealed. So for people that hold a flat view of scripture, they don't have any problem living in the 21st century going back and picking a verse from here and a verse from here and a verse from here and bringing them, regardless of historical context or developmental processes or anything, bringing them right into the 21st century and making it as if it's still pertinent. Can you think of a text that... Um, some text that, yeah. Don't get a tattoo. Oh, don't get a tattoo. In its historical context, uh, almost certainly it was implied that uh, people got tattoos as a statement of the God they served. Um, it was a marker. It was a theological marker. So what's, you know, there's a big difference between saying uh, Marduk rules and having a butterfly put on your, uh, can't say it, but you know where I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what do you think? Anything else? Stuff that the Bible's yeah. It's don't touch the skin of a pig. Yeah, um, it, it, just tons of stuff that was relevant back then, but is in under this view is no longer relevant. But if you hold a flat view of Scripture, you just pick and pick your way right through the Bible and get a compilation of verses and then haul it right into the present time as if it's still pertinent. Even the scriptures itself says that this is a, a bad approach. However, 
many people out of a sincere uh, devotion to what they consider to be the word of God, it's inspired, it's given to us by God, out of a sincere belief in that, they have a flat view of it. They don't make any uh, recognition of development, progressive revelation. Okay, now, I'm going to leave that there, progressive revelation. It's pertinent to what we're going to talk about today. Anybody want to have any questions or comments? Yes, sir. Uh, when you say we, <coughs> uh, well, if you recall, I taught a course here last year. It was called From Brat to Beatific. Does anyone remember that? Okay, so I was just trying to be cute with words, but we went through the New Testament and we showed uh, all these texts that talk about people that are spiritually infants and then spiritually uh, children and then spiritually young adults and then spiritually what are called mature adults. So there isn't a we answer. Uh, we are a collective body, the universal body of Christ, and everybody's on that spectrum towards development. And of course, <laughs> no, no one wants to say, <laughs> well, some do, but m most people don't want to say, well, I've arrived and I'm totally mature. So uh, d does anyone want to say that this morning? <laughs> but, but this is the point, Dr. Smith. The scriptures say that it is possible to reach in this lifetime that stage that is called spiritual maturity or adulthood and the scriptures, the apostles urge us to go as close to it as possible even though nobody wants to claim that they've arrived there because then well why don't we want to claim it? Uh, yes, there will always be, I mean like in Philippians 3 Paul says not that I have already attained but this one thing I do, forgetting that which is in, in the past, I press forward under the high calling, uh, to the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. But he still regarded himself as an adult. So the truth is, is that are you are all here. Aren't you all adults? Most of you. And don't you continue to learn? But just because you continue to learn, you don't deny that you're adults, right? See? So y the fact that we still develop as, as adults doesn't mean that you haven't reached adulthood. And so the same is true in the spiritual world. The New Testament says there is such a thing as spiritual adulthood. Yes, you still grow. But why don't people want to say, aha, I have reached adulthood? Back to the lady's question about why do we spend David when he didn't need that Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, right. I, very good point. Um, I think that is exactly why God describes certain things that people did. So we learn from uh, their positives and we also learn from their negatives. We learn what to do, we learn what not to do. Yes, exactly. So the answer to your qu my question is we're all different Yes, we are. We absolutely are.
How's it going now? <laughs> but uh, whatever, I mean, you, yeah, maybe so, but he's, he's made progress, though. He's still... It does, the New Testament does accurately say that there are some people that are never going to reach spiritual adulthood. It, it's uh, Maybe the majority? Uh, it doesn't really quantify it that way. It urges, the focus is, uh, the reason that God doesn't quantify it that way, because if God said to us in the scripture, by the way, there is a state called spiritual adulthood. However, most of you bozos are never going to get there. Uh, if God did say that to us, then most of us would say what? Okay, well, I'll just stay as a little baby. Uh, what it does say is that it exists, spiritual adulthood does exist, and it urges us to go as close to there or reach there uh, by the grace of God, not by our own efforts alone, by God's grace. Avail yourself of the grace of God and let God take you into that state of spiritual maturity. Probably, though, George, you're right. As you look through church history. Did John ever define what exactly is spiritual maturity? So how do we, how could we look at those parameters and say, I've achieved that? Uh, it isn't defined in a modern, scientific, quantifiable way, but it is, there are some markers, there are some uh, qualitative indicators that the New Testament does say, when you see this, you're probably looking at spiritual maturity. Like, yes, when you see that, more than you don't, uh, you can say that, yes, that person has uh, gotten there. And chief and foremost of the so-called fruits of the Spirit is, what did you say? Yes! Uh, the master said, this is how all people will know that you are my followers, if you love one another as I have loved you. And the, the sign that the master held forward of how you know you, as an individual and as a community that you're on the right track is when you uh, are progressively growing into the ability to show God's agape love to one another. When you see that, that's one of the good signs. In fact, I might even say that it might be the, the chief sign. Then is it egotistical to say, I've achieved spiritual Yeah, and that's why most people don't want to claim. Because they're wrong. Uh, yeah, but they also, yeah, they, they say, if I say that about myself, wow, am I going to get hammered? And I, am I going to have scrutiny put on me? And how people are going to... Uh, now, most of you go to a Presbyterian church. Uh, we could go to places uh, in America and among the so-called holiness churches. There's a movement called holiness churches. And uh, I, I can give you the names of the denominations if you care. In fact, there's one that is within, I, I mean, I could hit uh, probably a solid seven iron into their front yard. And they, on paper, taught people that it is theoretically possible to achieve what is called complete and absolute sanctification in this lifetime, which meant that you didn't sin any longer. Is that for Christ? What? Is that 
for a price? Oh, no, 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 not that. No, no, the original formulator of the doctrine of complete and utter sanctification, John Wesley, that wasn't about money. Uh, he believed that it was a work, he, actually they called it the second work of grace. The first work of grace was justification when we come to faith in Christ and we're declared to be righteous by God. The second work of grace is when you lay yourself completely open to God and God infuses your heart with the agape love of God to such an extent that you so much love God that you, sin is no longer uh, even desirable to you. You, you. you don't want it anymore. Uh, one of the church fathers said one time, this is a gross example, but it gets the point across, turn a human body inside out and see what stuff it's made of. And if you did do that and saw a human body uh, turned inside out, what would your attitude be? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, ah. well, that was what Wesley and the holiness people said. If you actually got to the state of the fullness of this second work of God's grace, that's how you would feel about sin. You would turn from it. You would cease to do it. Now, who has reached this blessed state? Yes, I understand that. Uh, but you have to admit, though, that took a long process of training, and it also requires a mindset to be able to get to that place. You take the average person and show them a body turned inside out, they'll pass out, right? So, I mean, doctors are in a different class. I, it is amazing to me, when I think about my friend Dan Moretta, to take a scalpel, to take a knife, put it on a human body and just open that. That is mind-blowing to me how people can do that. But that requires training. Now, yes? Um, uh, with certain qualifications. His question is, is progressive revelation continuing on into the present time? With certain qualifications. Um... I would prefer to look at it as progressive um, apprehension because I, I, I think the scriptures make the case that God isn't re really revealing new doctrines. And the reason is, is because the thesis of which actually we're talking about today is when Jesus came and is def defined as the word of God, like the book of Hebrews said, God in the past has spoken many times in many ways to our forefathers through the prophets has now in these last days spoken to us in Christ. In other words, there's a climax to the progressive revelation. And, but even though God's final word to us is Jesus, certainly each one of us can progressively apprehend what Jesus means and come to deeper and deeper realizations. Um, now, what, why don't you, you, that's a great question, why don't you, I mean, there are certainly a lot of Christians that do believe this. Okay, help us understand it. That's right. Yeah, that's true. Um, I'm, I'm sorry for confusing it. 
historically you're correct. Progressive revelation is what God reveals to a corporate body of people or to the human race over time. Then inside of that are the individuals and some people apprehend it better and go with the flow better than others do. Absolutely. So, but I don't, what, I, I mean, it, I'm not here to pound down a... But then the question is, does historical progressive revelation continue into the present and Yes, the okay, very good. Um, and uh, while there are, uh, let's say, you know, I don't want to quantify it, but yeah, there's, a, there's a good size of a body of Christians that do believe that that God is revealing new truths. Uh, but generally speaking, the church has been kind of leery about that because once you open the door to that <coughs> and start saying, well, God's revealing more than what has been revealed in Christ, then where does it end? And who's the authority to say, this has been a new revelation? All cults, so-called, like, for example, one that we've produced here in America. In fact, we've produced it right here in Ohio. It's predicated upon this very notion. What am I thinking about? Ah, uh, no, not the Amish. You can get there in an hour and a half from here. Mormonism. Uh, here a guy says, I found uh, some uh, plates, tablets, whatever, and it's the new revelation of God that corrects the misunderstandings of the historical past. And every so-called cult is predicated upon that notion. God has said something new that corrects your fallacious understanding of the past, those of you who are uh, clinging to this notion of Christ being the final truth. Yes, Yes, <clears throat> uh, I agree that, like, I am, the way I look at the scriptures is I'm Christological rather than doctrinal, and so certainly the main person of the Bible is Jesus, and in him we have the fullness of the truth. That's the, that's the truth claim of Christianity. Now, I don't... Uh, what most people want to do that want to add to the revelation is add ancillary uh, additional things to it, although in the case of the Mormons, for example, they substantively change uh, that notion, and so do Jehovah Witnesses and other people that make these claims. So if you look at the Bible Christologically, there's no doubt about it. We can't go any uh, farther than Jesus because he is God. Th we can certainly come to ever-increasingly greater understandings of Christ, but that's not necessarily revelation, that's illumination. I hope that's fairly decent. Now, anybody else want to say anything about this? <laughs> Are you sure? Okay. So, now let's, let's look at this historically and see what the thesis of the New Testament is. Uh, who can remember the date in which the Torah was revealed to Moses? 1444 B.C. And we'll do so we can be hip for the modern world before the common era, before Christ. Now, uh, just for technical accuracy, there are some people that would put it around 1250. But 
Certainly by the time we get to about 1,000 in the reign of David, everybody agrees. So a little disputation about that, but it's not critical to the issue. 1444 B.C., how long has the human race been on the earth? This is, the f this is when God begins to reveal for the first time in written form what we would call the words of God. 1444, that's 3,500 years ago. How long has the human race been around? That's undecided. Anybody want to throw something out? Just uh, there is a viewpoint that is uh, widely held among uh, Christians, uh, some Christians today. And where it comes from is the notion that uh, seven, of course, is the perfect number. And you've got to allow for the millennium to come. And so they worked it out. So certainly God would work out everything in 7,000 years because it would be nice and tidy and nice. However, the problem with that system is what? Humans have only been around for 6,000 years, then what? The implication of that is every historian, every bit of science that we know is completely and utterly wrong. So uh, that's probably not possible. Uh, for example, how many of you have been to Jericho? Ah! How old is it? You saw, you saw Professor Garstang's excavations, how she went down progressively, and they just left the, wall, the layers visible. Uh, they've dated Jericho to 10,000. It's regarded as the oldest city in the world. Uh, certainly, we've got much more evidence, too, that says the human race has been long, longer than that. They, they, they weren't the first humans. I don't know when it is. What's, uh, anybody know what the current... Uh, postulation is among people that are into this sort of thing? 100,000 years. Now, between 100 and 6,000 is a big gap. Let's split the difference and just say 50. If human beings have been on the earth for 50,000 years, and God started revealing scripture to Moses in whatever, 1444 or 1250, somewhere around 3,500 years ago. What in heaven's name was going on back here? Yeah. They weren't ready to, uh, yeah, well, uh, for uh, pictograms, uh, the first... Uh, which I'm an expert at. <laughs> uh, when, when were they developed? Um, it starts showing up in uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics, right? When you use a uh, picture instead of a word. Um, you probably put that about 7,000 years ago. Uh, so that's one answer. They're not ready for actual uh, writing. So what's the point of revealing a text to people at that point. But think about it. All this time, what's God doing with all these people? Nothing? Completely abandoning them? The God of love says, well, too bad. You were born on the wrong side of history. Too bad you weren't born in the 21st century where you can go to Berean bookstore and buy 50 Bibles. Slowly developing our brains. All right, so in short... Romans 1 says 
God has been manifesting the existence of God through the created order, always, from the dawn of time. It is embedded within the created order that something about the fact that there's a creator and that there's some rationality to the universe, it is shining through that which has been made. You can read about it in Romans 1, specifically, verses 18 and following. You like that? The, uh, the Psalms say the thing, same thing. The heavens declare the glory of God. So God, there's something about that which has been made that communicates to us that there is a God. Then Paul goes further. Romans 2, specifically 1 through 16. And I want you to look at this one with me. Uh, verses 14 and 15. From memory, I believe it's correct. When the Gentiles, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, they demonstrate that the work of the law has been engraved in their hearts, their consciences bearing witness, their thoughts alternatively accusing or defending them. Now, now you've got there. Look at that text carefully. Is it right, Phyllis? Is it 214? Did I get the number right? When the Gentiles who do, do not have... Yes. So, what Paul is doing here is, okay, the Jews had the law, but I mean the Jews were one little tiny proportion of the human race even when they received it. And then you've got all this long period of time that precedes that event, the revelation of the Torah. So what has God been doing for the human race all this time? They didn't have the law. They didn't have it written in written form. So what has God done for them? Thanks. How did God do, do that? What does the text say? What has God done? Yes! God took the essence of the Torah, not all 613 commandments, but the heart and core of it, and actually has engraved it into the fabric of what it means to be human. We're made in the image of God. God made us in such a way that we're hardwired to have this notion of God's uh, uh, truth inside of us. And then God says uh, in this text, that God gives each human something else, not just an engraved essence of the law on the heart, but another function that's bound up. We talked about it a week or two ago. Humans all have what? Some form of conscience. So the interplay between a human conscience, which is like a scale, and it tells you, Paul says, your thoughts alternatively either defend or accuse you because your conscience is saying, ah! Or... More rarely, probably, <coughs> yes. <laughs> right, good decision. You really get that warm, fuzzy feeling when you do the right thing, right? And you get that sinking feeling when you don't do the right thing. This interplay between the written, engraved uh, essence of God on the human heart plus the conscience that tells you when you're uh, following God's law this has been going on from the beginning of the human race. So God has not abandoned the human race. Yes, Judge? You know, that brings us back to the 
Yes, it does. It takes us all the way back to the beginning of whenever you want to date it. Whenever the first, whenever that moment of crossing over that line when, when you could say, that is a human. Humans were hardwired with this capacity. So, God has not left the human race in a lurch. God provided for them and showed them the truth about God. Now, uh, you might say, well, then why bother with a text? And who thinks they can give an answer to that? Why, why not just let it be uh, the beautiful creation? You know, there's somebody in this class that needs some help. They actually said they like this weather. <laughs> yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, right. So uh, it, progressive uh, development, progressive understanding was going on among these humans, too. And, uh, you know, uh, they couldn't, it, it's more precise to have a text, let's put it that way. Plus, what do we know about conscience? We have attorneys and judges here. You say, uh, well, it doesn't bother me. It, it didn't bother me. I, I'd have no problem. I sleep well at night. Really? <laughs> so conscience is not absolute. It's conditioned by time, by culture, by personal choices. It's not perfect. Nevertheless, it's better than nothing. I mean, if God wouldn't have given us conscience, then you would be like my German shepherd who literally tried to take a piece of pizza off my plate last night and had <laughs> apparently no qualms of conscience whatsoever. I was there and she went for it. Um, okay, so God now gives us a book and uh, simultaneously, by the way, I don't have too much time to talk about this, but uh, 469 to 399 and in my chapter on this topic, I mention a figure, does anybody remember a great figure, a great thinker, Greek, that lived about this time, approximately 400 years before the master showed up? Good old Socrates. And of course, Socrates was a rationalist in the sense that he was quite familiar with the Greek construct of logos, and in Greek thought, and that's why you should go and read this Wikipedia article, because it's brilliant on, on how it shows it. They didn't think of logos as word. To them, it was rationality. It was reason. It was the ability that human beings have to understand intellectually the good, the beautiful. And, of course, uh, Socrates believed that a human being could ascend into it and have it and enjoy it. And uh, simultaneously, there were another group of people that were around his time. Paul encountered them in uh, Acts 17. I spelled that wrong? Yes, I did. <laughs> the Stoics. And they, they were into the Logos, big time, in the sense that they kind of viewed it as 
a Star Wars force kind of construct. It was the animating principle of rationality that pervaded the universe. So, kind of try to fuse that with what Paul is saying. Uh, yeah, with a little bit of uh, vari variation of expression and whatnot, but they're kind of saying the same thing. That, uh, that there's a truth in the universe and it's apprehendable by human beings using their intellect, and it does involve uh, the thing called conscience and ethics, and it does point to uh, somebody or something that is the source of all of this logic. Yeah. So now we get to the climax. I find the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and let's see what John does. First three words, where does he get it from? In the beginning. In the beginning, where does he get those words? It goes right back to the very first three words of the Bible, of the Torah, in the beginning. He's quoting three words, but now he's going to change the text, believe it or not. In the original, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In his version, he says, in the beginning was the Word. Logos. He doesn't mean the Bible. Who does he mean? Jesus. How do we know that? Go down to verse 14, same chapter. And the Logos became flesh and lived among us. So now look at what John has done. Back here, people viewed this animating reason, and certainly Socrates and the Stoics did, not as a person, but as a principle that was embedded in the universe and inside of us. What has John done? He's saying that this so-called animating principle of rationality that you think is embedded in the universe is actually a person, a being. And that being actually came to us and actually took on our form and lived among us. And we were able to see him and see the display of what a fully complete, realized, and would we all agree Jesus was spiritually mature? Yeah, yeah, right. There you have it. He's, he's the one that we all say, yep, he was completely developed as a human being. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, in the time remaining, here's my conclusion, and you think about it. Here's the mistake that a lot of people have made. They do something like this. Universal symbol for Christ, the Cairo. They exalt the Bible over Christ. And they do it with all sincere intentionality and belief. And their argument is as such. Uh, how do you know anything about Christ unless you have the Bible? The Bible is the inspired what? Word of God. Aha. Nah, that's not what the scriptures really say, though. When the, when the scriptures talk about, when the people that wrote the scriptures talk about the scriptures, they actually call them the scriptures, plural. 
They call them the words of God. And so what happens when you, when you do this? Because I think what the apostles really taught was this. Jesus is the word, and the words of God are one more helper along with this and this to do what? To lead you into an experience and a knowing of and a lifestyle of being filled with Christ the Word. He's the climax. Is it making sense? Now, what happens when you reverse it is you turn everybody into basically amateur lawyers. Because now we all sit around with a text arguing about what? What it says and what it means. Uh, when you do it this way, you're now telling people what? You have all of the fullness of the living God living where? Inside of you. And Jesus himself, if you open yourself up to him, he is able to lead you into that state of awareness that you can come into spiritual maturity. Now, the Bible can help you. It gives you some fine-tuning. But anytime you make that reversal, you turn people into amateur lawyers, and they sit around and argue about who's got the uh, best understanding of the text. When you do it this way, the master was real simple. He, he reduced everything down to uh, the essence of it. He said, uh, well, if you really want to know who my true followers are, what? Look for love. Look for agape love. When you, see, when you see manifested through human beings that kind of love that I showed when I died on the cross for the human race, then you know. It's not about arguing about text and words and all of that stuff. It's about love. So in the present age, God has said something to us. You know what? Love in the person of Jesus, trumps what? This pursuit of cognitive understanding. And then, last text for today, could you find Galatians 2.20 with me, please? This is, in a nutshell, what the New Testament is trying to convey to us. When you get there, you'll see something like this. <clears throat> Paul writing says... I am crucified with Christ. Let's put it um, in modern language. I have, an I have experienced a death to my ego by my fusion with Christ. It's no longer I living my own life any longer. Instead, I'm allowing the living Christ to live in and through me. No, see, he doesn't say, I've memorized the Bible and I'm following it. He did that prior to becoming a Christian. And he realized that's not what God is about. I have experienced a death to my own independent way of life through my union with Christ. Now Christ is living in me. I'm letting him live th through me. And uh, I, uh, in that way, am becoming the kind of person that God wants. The, okay, so it's now 10, 16. What do you, we got time for a couple comments. Yes. If it is not against a standard of God's righteous law, by what 
Yeah, yes, and uh, on one occasion he said to the Pharisees who were masters of the law, which among you can convince me or persuade me or convict me of sin? And he, in other words, he said, scour through your 613 commandments and find which one that you think I've broken. Well, they did kind of do that. That's why they set off on what? One day the master's walking through a wheat field with his disciples, and, uh, you know, I don't know if you guys did this when you were kids, but... A raw wheat is quite nice. You grab a handful of wheat, uh, smash it up, and then you get this little kernels of wheat. The best thing ever. The disciples are doing this. And the Pharisees see this and they say, what? Aha! It's Saturday. You did work. You harvested grain. You broke the law. So, you're right. Uh, he openly said... Now, don't be legalistic about it. Look at the essence of God's law, and if you can persuade me of sin on those grounds, then okay, then do it. Well, they really couldn't do it. So that's how we came to that conclusion. Um, I truly appreciate you bringing that out because I don't want to leave anybody with the impression that this is not inspired or it's not crucial or it's not critical. But the master himself said, uh, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you're going to find eternal life. And it is these very scriptures that do what? This is in John 5, 37 through 39. These very scriptures do what? They point to me. So as a pointer, they are inspired. But they don't, they're not self-reflexive. They don't point you back to themselves, which is what I think happened to us in the history of the church. We became so bibliocentric that we, we did the same thing that the Pharisees did. We became obsessed with the text. But the text, the master says, does what? points you to Jesus. So, yeah, there's no disjunct. There's no conflict. It's a matter of which way you uh, arrange them. I hope that's helpful. Okay, God bless you. Have a great day. Mm -hmm.